You're listening to the preaching podcast from Regency Baptist Church, located in Loomis, California, in the greater Sacramento region. We pray that you'll be blessed by this Bible-based message. And it's also our desire that you'll be helped with this message in your personal walk with Jesus and strengthened in your commitment to serve Him daily. Let's take our Bible, Zechariah tonight. Zechariah, we are in the final book of the Minor Prophets. We've been in this study for uh, several months now, and we saved the largest of these for last. Now, there's what are known as the Minor Prophets in the Bible. That's those last small books we've been going over in the Old Testament. And then there are the Major Prophets. You could probably guess those ones, Jeremiah, Isaiah, but also Daniel, Ezekiel, and Lamentations. And this book is bigger than two of the major prophets. So this is not a small book. We'll probably take two weeks on this, and so we're not going to try to rush too much. But I pray this will be a help. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. If you'll stand, please, as you find it there in your Bibles. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse number 1. The Bible says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore, say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you tonight, I pray you'd speak to our hearts. God, help us to learn the truths from this passage as we learn the information, God, to understand the heart behind the message. Father, help us, I pray. I pray that we would not get, that might be a little confusing or difficult to understand. But Lord, that we'd learn your heart and God learn and understand your message for us. Father, help us to walk away helped and encouraged, convicted. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Zechariah is one of the very interesting, unique books of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Most of us would think of the minor prophets and have probably very little knowledge on a lot of these books. And by the way, that's a reason why we're doing this. And I hope it is a help to you as we go through these smaller, more unfamiliar, very confrontational. I mean, these books in the end of the Old Testament are in your face. I mean, hits you square between the nose, calls out sin and talks about the grace and mercy, but also the justice and the holiness of God. Zechariah means this. His name means the Lord remembers. Now, as we get into this, I'll be, I'll be pretty frank with you. The book of Zechariah is a very, it's a very interesting book. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of symbolism. A, a big portion of this book is the dreams that Zechariah had. How many ever woken up from a dream and said, what in the world did I just dream? And it's almost like we, we dream strange things, don't we? You ever told your spouse your dream and they look at you like, did I really marry you? I mean, how, how in the world could you dream that? Well, we can't control our dreams all the time, of course, but Zechariah is a very unique book, and a big portion of that is due to the dreams that he dreamed. Now, this is God's book, and this is God's message, so there's a purpose for that. We're not going to dive too deep into that. We'll survey it just a little bit, Uh, but there's there's great, uh, there's such beautiful pictures in these passages that Zechariah encompasses the scope of what Israel was going through in this season, but also in the time where close to where Christ would come, all the way into the future when Jesus 
comes again. So a lot of the promise that we're still waiting for is even found in this book in Zechariah. And so a lot of exciting promises, a lot of very uh, great truths that we can cling to. I'm not going to read all these passages, but I hope you understand that as you read the Bible, you can see the Lord Jesus Christ on every page and every story and in every promise of the Word of God. Hey, people, don't get lost in the stories and in the accounts of history and in the prophecies and symbols and signs of the Bible that we miss the Savior of the Bible. You see, people look at the end times and they talk about the Antichrist and the sign and the mark and all this stuff, and they forget the very important part that verse 1 of Revelation 1, it says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's who the Bible is about. It's not about the stories and the symbols and the dreams. It's about Jesus. And we ought to realize that the message of all of God's word is to draw us and to help us see clearer Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Bible speaks of in Zechariah 2 that the Lord will dwell with us. I will dwell with thee. Hey, aren't you glad that you have a God that is personal to you? I'm not just over you, but my desire is to dwell with you. In chapter 3, he's described as the branch, the stone. In chapter 6, the branch again. And so we see in the book of Zechariah, amidst a lot of very interesting pictures, that the theme is still the theme like it is everywhere else in the Bible. And that is the theme of Jesus Christ. When God talks to us about the family, it's to draw us close to that person, Jesus Christ. And when God speaks to us about history, it's to see the work and the fingertip and the writing of Jesus Christ. As we see God work in our world, we are to draw closer to the heart of Jesus Christ. As we look to future promises and prophecy fulfilled and what God is going to do when he comes, it should cause us to look and think of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, let's not forget the theme. And I want to show you a few things this evening. Number one, we see the summary of the present dilemma. Verse number two, the Bible starts off, and again, I, I, a part of the reason why I love this study is that these Old Testament prophets were, these were leather-lung preachers. I mean, these are men of God that you see the Bible talks about they had a burden. And in their heart, they conveyed and they preached that burden. And what was that burden? There was sin and there was problems. There was heartache in their land. There was a burden for their nation. Dear people, I hope that we look around in the world that we live and we are burdened for the families and the broken lives and the ruined hearts and the ruined moms and dads and kids and people that need something. And we know this, they need Jesus. We ought to have a burden for the Lord. And with that burden, we find men like Zechariah and Haggai preaching the word of God plain and true. I'm thankful for a pastor that I grew up under that preached the word of God. And don't get mad at people for preaching what the Word of God says. We have a lot of people in our day preaching nonsense or preaching just ideas or preaching just the trend or the fad or trying to just say something to sound good in a certain way for a clip for social media. We need more that just preach the Word of God plain and true and simple. Verse number two, he says this, his opening statement, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. In other words, Zechariah said this, God's not happy. God's not happy. And the call to the people is this, verse 3. Really the whole book of Zechariah, really the whole message of the word of God, 
I think could be summarized in this statement. Verse number three says, Therefore, say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. By the way, you'll find that word or that phrase, the Lord of hosts, is repeated over 50 times in this book of Zechariah. God says, Turn to me, and I will turn to you. In James, he says, draw nigh to me, and I will draw nigh to you. In the Old Testament, he says, obey me, and I will pour out blessing unto you. Over and over again in the word of God, God says, trust in me, and I will guide you. I will lead you. Watch this. You do your part, and I'll do my part. You put your faith and accept me as your personal savior, and I'll seal your name in the book of life and make for certain that you have a home in eternity, are saved from the pits of hell, and have a mansion in heaven waiting for you. You just give faith, and I'll do the rest. Don't you like it that when we do our part, that our part is about this big, compared to God's part that's about this big? God says, I want to expect something of you, but in order for me to work, I need to see that you're willing to obey. Or I want to see that you have a little bit of faith. Or turn. You turn from your flesh and you turn from your wicked way and you turn to what is right. You turn to what I've commanded you. So the message to the people here is turn to the Lord. If you read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And the, the, the message of Jeremiah is this, return unto the Lord. Get back to doing what you know is right. If there's a message that our world needs today, it is to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought not just to talk about the glory days of what used to be. Well, it used to be a Christian nation, America. Or we used to be a Christian family that went soul winning and were on fire for God. We used to pray and have a heart for the Lord. You know, I used to read that Bible every day. Maybe it's time for us just to say, you know what? We need to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because then he will turn to us. God, why aren't you blessing where are the answers to prayer? And God, why, why can't I see you in my midst? Well, you turn to me, and I will then turn to you. We see it's a call to repentance. By the way, that's what repentance is. It's a turning. A turning from what we are to what we should be. The Bible tells parents in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in what? In the way he should go. There's the way he wants to go and the way he should go. So there's a turn that needs to happen there. There's repentance. We as God's people, every day we wake up, and I don't know about you, but I battle this carcass. I battle this flesh. From the moment we wake up, we might feel a little tired and say, I'd rather stay in bed and not go to work or not do my job or not live right. Or maybe you get on the road and you say, I don't want to be a nice person in traffic today. Or I don't want to be, you know, the kindest individual, or I don't want to respond right. And what do we do? We need to battle this flesh and turn to our spirit and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Turning. It's turning from what we are to turning to what we should be. It's turning from what is wrong to turning to what is right. We see next it's a call not only to repentance, but a call to remembrance. Now, what did he say in verse number two? It says, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. So he says, before we go on, I need you to understand something, that there's been sin going on for generations 
And if nothing changes, then you're going to see the hand of God come down. It's been a sin from your forefathers down to your fathers, down to you, and you're passing it down to your children. At some point, somebody's got to turn. At some point, a decision needs to be made. Just because it's the status quo, just because it's the cultural trend, doesn't mean that it's right. God's people should never go with the sways and winds of culture. We should be following the word of God. And here's the truth, friend. Most of the time, that's going to go against culture. It's going to go against the modern trends of the world. It's a call to remembrance. You read this passage and he reminds them. He says, it's because of your fathers that you're in the position that you are. So the timing of Zechariah is that the people of God had been under captivity in Babylon. We know the name Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar came through Babylon and destroyed Jerusalem and invaded several times. The book of Daniel is the Babylonian Empire. Daniel and the three Hebrew children, and you find the uh, eating of the king's meat and the lion's den when the Persians came. And this is right at the end of the Babylonian Empire's rule and their captivity over the Jews. Now, this is really important. That 70 years where Babylonian ruled over Israel was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. So they could pinpoint and say, this 70 years is almost up. What's going to happen? After Babylon was invaded by Persia, something amazing happened. And we read of this in the Minor Prophets. God's people were able to go back to their land, and they were able to build the city, build the walls, and build the temple. I don't know about you, but that would have been an exciting time to be in the people of God at that time. To say, we've done wrong, but God's given us an opportunity to make it right. Hey, aren't you thankful for a God of second chances? God, we deserve to stay in captivity. Lord, I deserve to stay in the pits with my sin. Lord, I deserve anything bad that's come in my life, but God gives that space of grace. And he allowed the people to go back. Haggai is much about the rebuilding of the temple. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries, but Haggai was an older man. Zechariah, at this point in his ministry, was a younger man. And he comes along and says, let's, let, let, let's rebuild the temple and let's finish the work that God's allowed us to do. Hey, let's get the glory back to what we should be, what we need to be. And he reminds them how they got there. It's your fathers who disobeyed. It's your forefathers who didn't do what was right. In this generation, you have an opportunity. You have a chance. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what the generation before you has done. Every generation has a decision to make. Every generation has a battle to fight. Every generation has a responsibility. You can't blame the generation that went before you. You can't blame the generation that's coming after you. You have a responsibility over your life. Your generation has a responsibility over your lives. And he tells the people here, this is what your fathers did. Look how it turned out for them. We, we have a, a society in America that is very illiterate with history, are we not? We have a society in America that's illiterate about almost everything, it seems like. I mean, you see videos go around, and we don't know how many states are in the United States. We don't know what the capital of the U.S. is. We don't hardly know who, you know, the last couple of presidents are. We don't, maybe many don't even know who the president is. I don't know if the president knows who the president is right now. <laughs> But they didn't know what was going on. 
And the call to remembrance was this. It didn't work out good for them, right? Do you want the same to happen to you? Do you want to continue in this? Do you want the same continuation of displeasure and the wrath of God and judgment, punishment? Then let's change something. Let's turn and get back to God. Let's, let's maybe try something different. That hurts. Don't touch it again. I mean, it's not rocket science. So it's a call to remembrance, to turn back to God. They failed to listen. So he tells you, hey, don't make the same mistake. You don't have to make the same mistake that those who went before you did. And I know the heart of every parent is probably this, that, that your children, that our children would do better than us that you would learn in a greater way, that you would grow beyond our mistakes, because every generation knows we all have mistakes. Zechariah was this young preacher preaching, Let, let's continue to build the temple, continue to, to bring the glory back to God in this light. He mentions your father three times in these first couple of verses. He talks about the Lord of hosts 53 times in this passage. You get to the, uh, the end of this, really first section of chapter one, and uh, we're taking time through this, and there's 14 chapters, so we're going to get there eventually. But can I, can I remind you of the book of Ezra? The book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls. Same period. The reign of Persia, God's people are able to go back after Babylon, then came Persia. Think Daniel 6, the Daniel lion's den, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, that, that's all under the Persian rule. And so you find here in Ezra, remember they built the temple, and the younger generation did what? This is great. And they were excited. They were on fire for God. What did the older generation do? They wept. They said it's nothing like the temple before. It's nothing like how it used to be. Can I tell you? those of you who are looking at the generation that's come behind you now, that you have an opportunity to encourage those behind you that are seeing God work for the very first time in their lives. I'll, I'll say with just a little example in this way, uh, it means a lot for the older generation to give encouragement to the younger generation. I'm not talking about condoning sin. I'm not talking about doing the wrong. They were trying to do a good work, but they were comparing it, just the stuff, and by the way, God reminded the people, I don't need to dwell in a place, but, but David, anyways, we'll go through that too much, but they had an opportunity to be an encouragement. Um, my wife and I were out at Cracker Barrel a couple weeks ago, I think, and uh, if you have young kids and go to a restaurant, I mean, it's, Lord, say your prayers, you know, you have the talk beforehand, and you're going to listen, we're going to be happy, it's going to be great, you're going to stay in your seat, you're not going to poke your sister. We're going to go to the bathroom beforehand, and I mean, cross all your T's, dot all your I's. We're going, to, we're going to do this right. And then you get through the front doors of the store, and it's like your kids have amnesia. And they forgot that we even had a conversation. We're not going to run. And two steps later, they take off. It's like, who, who was I talking to before we came in? Anyways, we get into Cracker Barrel, and our kids love Cracker Barrel, and uh you know, it's, okay, we're going to go to the table. We're not going to go to the toys. We get in the store. Where do they go? They go to the toys. And we get the table ready. We go to the table. We sit down. We eat. Our kids love pancakes there. I'm not a big pancake person, but Cracker Barrel makes great pancakes. 
And uh, anyway, so we had a, a great dinner together. And I, I mean, our kids did, 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 they did okay, but you know, they're still kids. They're still in training, amen? They have not finished the chorus at the Becker home. They are still at the beginning phase of that. So tell you what, kids make you look at other people a lot differently when you understand the reality of parenting. But after we were done, I went and paid for the meal. You have to go to the front. You have to pay for your meal with a ticket. And so I go pay for the meal, and I come back, and my wife said, oh, you should have seen this uh, older couple that came over, and they just said, man, your kids behave so well, and they did so good, and it was so great. And I just said, thank you, Lord. I mean, <laughs> that, that means so much to a young family that are raising kids. Because, I mean, this, we're, we're trying. We're, we're trying our best. We're not perfect. Our kids certainly aren't perfect. And I mean, it's, it's a process, but man, that, that means so much from an older generation. It means one thing from your peers, but to have those that have gone on before you that don't have kids in the home anymore, that's a small, that's a small example. How much more the work of God. Man, you see a young person maybe leading a bus program or, or you have our teen services or helping in a junior church or something. You might have done it for 20 or 30 years and say, oh, this is how you lead the song. Come on, don't you know this? Or you can encourage them. Encourage the next generation that is seeking to do something for the cause of Christ. We, we, we see the, the summary of their dilemma. Number two, the symmetry. All right, now it gets interesting. The symmetry of the prophet's dreams. So I want you to stay with me here. There's a lot that this covers, and I'm going to give you just a brief summary of it because we could talk a long time about what all of this means, what it possibly means, um, but I hope it'll be a help to you. So there's eight different nighttime visions that we find in the book of Zechariah. We, we understand in the Bible that God worked through dreams a lot in the Old Testament, uh, a little bit in the New Testament as well. Uh, I don't know necessarily that I could say God can't work that way anymore. I think a lot of the reasons that God doesn't work in visions and dreams anymore is because of this book. Because the canon of scripture has been written. God says it's been sealed. He says, write no more. There's no private interpretation. So somebody comes to you and they say, I had a dream last night and God told me that God would come back on February the 18th, 2024. Well, that's great. Maybe you had an extra piece of pizza last night or something and you had an interesting story to tell, but I don't know if I would take that as Bible. And a big part of that is simply because we have the Word of God. And that's a big portion of it. Um, there's a lot more we could talk about. But God spoke to Zechariah through dreams. And we find that there's a symmetry with all these dreams. So there's eight dreams, eight visions paired together. The first and the eighth coincide. The second and the seventh one coincide. The third and the sixth coincide. And the fourth and the fifth dream coincide. So... We're going to go through this quickly. Stay with me, okay? Uh, can I say this? When you see symbolism in the Bible, don't get confused by it, but especially don't get deceived by it. There's a lot of false doctrine in the world because God uses a symbol or God uses a picture, and people take it to come up with some of the most bizarre theology and doctrines in our day, and, and we need to be careful about that. But also, don't get intimidated by it. I, don't, I just don't believe that God gave us his word to confuse us or to trip us up or to cause us to say, you know what, I'm reading and I'm studying, 
oh, I can't understand that. Why even try? I don't think that's God's desire for us, nor should it be our response to the word of God. So in the first and eighth vision, we see four horsemen. And these horsemen are pictured as surveying the world. And what they found was peace. And this is a time where they looked around and they're surveying the Gentile nations of Persia and other nations that are thriving, not the Jews of this time. And the Bible says that God is displeased with them. Why? Because these are not godly empires. <laughs> this is not a godly people. You can look around in the world today and you can see people living in Hollywood. You can see those living in D.C. You can see those living in luxurious places that are atheists and anti-God, that don't believe the Bible, that aren't saved. And we could say this, that they are living a life of ease, that they're living a life of worldly comfort. And we could survey the world and say, look at all the unbelievers and look at all the, the godless people and look at the comforts of the world that they are enjoying. Well, we see what God, how God feels about that in chapter 1, verse 14. So the Lord that communed with me said unto me, cry thou, saying, thus saith, here it is again, the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now, jealousy can be a wrong feeling, but it can also be a good virtue. If a husband is jealous over his wife because a man is speaking inappropriately to her, I would say that's a good jealousy. That's protection. That's, hey, I want you to be careful. I'm going to maybe be a little bit on guard when that person's around because we are married and you are mine and I am yours. That wouldn't be a sin. I wouldn't respond and say, well, who do you think you are? Don't you trust me? No, that's a good husband. And if it's the wife, that's a good wife. It's the wrong kind of jealousy that we see in the nursery. Well, that's my toy. Give me back. That's my, that's my seat in church. Right? Hopefully we don't do that, especially to visitors. Amen. God says, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased. Verse 15 with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they help forward the affliction. So Babylon experienced blessing uh, when they overtook Jerusalem, and God gave uh, earthly prosperity to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said before God turned him into a beast? He said, look, look at this kingdom, and look what I've created. Look what I've done. And the Bible says when the words were in his mouth that God turned him, and gave him the heart of an animal and of a beast for seven years. Let's not think for a second that God is batting an eye to the sin and the evil and the wickedness taking place in our world. We think we've got it bad, and well, God's people are being oppressed, and God's people just don't get anything, and those that are living a, a wicked, evil, godless lifestyles, they're, they're living at ease. Can we understand through this picture that God says, I see everything. And nothing's gotten past the Lord. And God's not going to pass over and condone anything that's taking place. We find in Daniel 5, you know, the story of the handwriting on the wall, that God would hold Babylon accountable. He said, you have been weighed, you've been measured, you've been numbered. And in one night, God overtook the world empire at that time. Isn't that amazing? We would be foolish to think that we have any security with anything that we've gained in this world. 
Here's great Babylon, the, the, the empire and the strong fortress. And God said, your time's up. You're done. Just like he could with us at any time. Just like he could with America at any moment. Or any nation of the world for that matter. Any people, any business, anything in this world. Hey friend, that's why we ought not to plant too strong of roots in this world. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. He says, Babylon, your, your time is up. In other words, I, it's almost like God said, I can't take it anymore to see you prosper and my people suffer. Now it's time for the next, and Persia overtook them with the Medes. Uh, the next, chapters 2 and 7, we find that there's a picture of horns and carpenters. Horns is a picture of uh, leaders, leadership in the Bible or strength, especially military strength. We will go through a lot of this, but you find a difference of empires that overtake the people of God all the way up to when Jesus comes and the Romans are uh, the leading people group of that day. And then it talks about carpenters that overtake them. In other words, God says, okay, your time's up, and another overtook. And it went Babylon and the Persians and the Grecians and Rome, and then that empire that will come one day, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everybody will see the true God and the true leader of the universe. In chapter 1, verse 21, it says, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. In other words, God said, I did this to keep you humble. You understand that God hates pride. God hates pride. We talked about it through Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Saul. We see it all throughout Scripture. Proverbs chapter 6, I believe it is, talks about that God hate, and that's the Bible word, hates. He hates pride. And he did this to the nations. He did this to Israel to, to humble them. Visions 3 through 3 and 6 in chapter 2, uh, we find a man measuring a city, a, a promise that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. It's a new city without walls. And we find in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, and he said unto them, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Now there's a lot of debate about this passage, but I just want to give you a truth that I think is pretty cool. God says, I'm going to establish a nation that is without walls. Well, we know why... Cities and people groups have walls, don't we? Why do we think it's important that we put up some barriers in America? Why do you put a lock on your door, a wall, so people can't come in? It's for protection. It's human nature. And so we see that in the world. That's been around since the beginning of time. It's just, hey, we want to be protective of this. We want to be responsible for what God has given to us. But God says, I'm going to establish a nation without walls. Why? Because God says, I'm in the midst of it. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of peace. We don't have to be afraid of our enemies. This is a picture of our future and eternal and perfect restoration with God. Aren't you glad that everything we have to look forward to can give peace in our heart that passes all understanding to know that it might be sickness that might take my life in this world. It might be tragedy. It might be a catastrophic event. It might be just going with the Lord on my deathbed and in the middle of the night. But in any of those ways, 
if I'm with God in eternity, there's peace. And that's what the Lord is speaking to his people about. That with me, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to go through this world biting your fingernails and cowering in fear and saying, well, I just don't know with the next stock market crash, the next economic crisis, the next family problem, or the next election that comes. We have a peace that we can look to, and it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see a flying scroll in later chapters that purges the city from sins. It's a picture of the scripture uh, that purifies the people. And then the fourth and fifth vision are uh, about the leaders uh, in the return in exile. So in this, we go back to the book of Ezra. And in Ezra, we have Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor leading God's people to rebuilding the temple, hey, restoring, turning back the things of God and getting back on the right track. In chapter three, we have Joshua accused of Satan. God gave him a pair of dirty clothes to symbolize Israel's filth in their sin. And then he gives them new clothes to say this, I want to restore you and I want to make you clean. Hey friend, that's God's desire for all people, that you are dirty and filthy in your sin. And I, because only Jesus can do it, and I want to make you clean. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are clean and purged from our sins. And then he tells Joshua, it is only if, if you do your part. Chapter three, verse seven, if you want to look there, thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house and shall keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So he says, here's what I want to do, Joshua, but it's all predicated on if. If you'll obey. Young people, God can use your life if you follow the Lord and trust in him. If. God says, if you do your part, then this is how I'm going to bless. We want God to bless without us doing what God's commanded. God, I want you to provide for my finances, but I'm going to hold back my tithe. I want you to give me souls, but I'm not going to go soul winning. I want you to answer my prayers, but I'm not going to pray. God says, I, I want to bless you, but it, it's going to depend on if, on if you keep to what I've commanded you. We, we have these pictures of Jesus Christ as a branch and as a stone, as the eyes and the engraving in the stone as well. And then in chapter four, Zerubbabel, he's the descendant of David. And we have a picture of that all throughout the minor prophets that even in exile and captivity, watch this, even when the nation was a mess, God says, I've still got a plan. And Jesus still came through the line of Judah, through David's descendants, just as he said he would. Zerubbabel was proof of that. Zechariah 4, 6, then he answered and spake unto me, saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, listen, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Hey, I want you to rebuild the temple, and I want you to rebuild the walls, and I, I want you to rebuild the city, but you better depend on God as you do your work. I hope dear people, whether it's teaching in a Sunday school class or singing in church, Brother Herm, what a great special. Thank you for singing that. Lead in a song, singing in choir. Whatever you do for the Lord, don't depend on your flesh to get it done. God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. By my spirit, Zerubbabel. We have a picture in chapter four of olive trees providing oil 
uh, to a lamp. These trees are symbols of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Uh, and God is teaching them to lean on his spirit and his strength to do their work. We have a, a final vision of Joshua the high priest, and God symbolizes him as well, of being faithful to God and following the Lord. We'll, we'll continue on as we get together next time. If we could just understand, going back to chapter 1, God says in verse 2, I've been displeased, but verse 3, turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you. I believe that's true for any Christian. Until Jesus comes again, can I say, dear people, we have an opportunity to turn to the Lord. Every day, to turn away from your flesh and to turn to the Lord. To turn away from worldly ideology and to turn to the Word of God. To turn from my worries, to turn on my knees in prayer. To turn from my stability to giving to the Lord and having faith in Him. God says, turn to me and I will turn unto you. And if you could learn anything from these half a dozen passages, it's this, that God knows exactly what needs to be done. He knows how he's going to do it. He knows the perfect plan, the best plan, and he wants what's best for you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He told the people, I, I've sent you into captivity, but I've not forgotten about you. In fact, just the opposite I am jealous over you, and I want you back to myself. I don't enjoy seeing the Babylons take advantage of you, and I don't enjoy seeing the Persians rule over you. I want you to come back and return unto me. Can we remember the heart of God and how God longs for his people to draw close to him? Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from Regency Baptist Church. We pray that God has used this message to stir your heart for the gospel's sake. To get information about our ministry or to get in contact with us, please visit us at regencybaptistchurch.org. If you were encouraged by this Bible message, share it with a friend, contact us, or tune in next time to the Regency Baptist Church Preaching Podcast.